Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Strongway Venture Capital Podcast. Today, we have joining us Walker Wallace, who is managing partner of O'Melveny's Shanghai office and a leader of the firm's China practice. He has extensive experience in international transactions and has worked with multinationals seeking to invest in China, with private equity funds pursuing investment strategies in Southeast Asia, and much more. Walker has been working in the Shanghai office since 1997. He is the former chairman of the legal committee for the Shanghai American Chamber of Commerce and is the co-author of Acquisitions of Companies with Chinese Assets, Foreign Private Equity Investment in China, and more. Walker was also named by Chambers Asia in 2016-2017 Best Lawyers Under the Categories China Corporate M&A and China Private Equity Buyouts. Given his extensive area experience in his area and the numerous requests by the audience, for today's podcast, we'll focus on explaining how U.S. companies should think about entering the China market, including what are different entry options, pros and cons, examples, with a particular focus on JV. So, Walker, welcome. Thank you very much. Very kind introduction. No worries at all. So, Walker, your career today is a stuff of legends. Before we dive into our topic this week on China entry, let's start with your story. You know, what's it been like over these past 20 years, and you know, what do you see, and were you surprised that folks back home don't understand? Uh, so, so thank you again for the introduction to, to outline my background for you. I came to China for the first time in 1990. Uh, I was just graduated from college, and uh, I was teaching English in uh, Guangzhou to uh, recent graduates from, from Chinese universities and sort of the first wave of Chinese graduates to join multinationals. Um, and then in 1992, in 1992, I went back to the United States to get my law degree and to uh, work for a couple of years in New York. But my whole goal at that time was I had to get back to China. I had to get back to China because it, it seemed like a, a very exciting and dynamic place. And so I've been in, in uh, China since uh, 1997, uh, that entire time with O'Melveny and Myers working on uh, China projects and watched the development of China over that period of time. So you, you asked a question about sort of what are the things that uh, people should know about China. There's lots of things. I mean, you could write you could write a book about it. Yep. But I think I think some of the things that um, uh, I think is, is a couple of things that I think would be very helpful for almost anybody know to know coming to China to do business for the first time is um, first of all, and this this may sound counterintuitive, um, but China is not all people wearing Mao suits and, and riding bicycles. And, and I know that the foreign press right now, um, there, there's a broad recognition of how far China has come, that it's a wealthy country. But I, I still get a kick out of um, clients that come to China, and they're just floored by how prosperous this place is and how um, you know, well-dressed people are and how fancy the restaurants are. And uh, there's a, my, one of my favorite places in Shanghai is a, is a, a corner uh, down uh, near a place called uh, Tomorrow Center where you can find a Maserati dealer, a Lamborghini dealer, and a, a BMW dealer all on one, one uh, intersection. And it just floors people to, to see how prosperous uh, China really is. Um, I think the second thing I would share with people is, is that uh, China millennials are a very different breed than any other generation of Chinese in living memory. And that they, um, they are more cosmopolitan, they are more interested in lifestyle issues than maybe their parents were. 
Um, they are more uh, in tune. They have their own culture and their own entertain forms of entertainment. And it's very important when you're looking at China to realize that they're they're these. It's a it's a very big and different segment in China. And I guess the third thing would be, is that um, I think that. Uh, it's important that people get away from the image of China as just a copycat. That China is inherently a very innovative culture. That if you take a look at businesses that have had to struggle with um, sometimes outright government hostility in the earlier years of the reform and opening pro uh, process and had to invent business models that will work here, or if you take a look at um, almost any scientific announcement announced today in Western universities, uh, and you see a, you'll see a Mandarin, a, a, a mainland name in, in the list of people innovating. Uh, you take a look at the, the new products that are starting to come out of China, that it's really important to recognize that China's not just a copycat, that China's a real innovator. Right, Walker. Well, there's certainly been a number of examples of innovation in China. Many of these we're starting to become more familiar with, including you know, usage of WeChat and the ease of financial payments via scanning QR codes uh, anywhere you go, the bike sharing phenomenon that's starting off in China and taking off overseas as well, and plenty more. Uh, but uh, you know, from your perspective as a lawyer and having observed over the past 20 years, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, institutional changes or policies that have been, that have been uh, set up to facilitate innovation uh, and accelerate the development of new technologies and products. So to, to facilitate innovation in China? Yeah. Well, yeah. for example, you've seen uh, the government uh, actively go out and court international researchers to come and join Chinese research institutions. You've seen uh, government money that's been going into uh, specific efforts to try and innovate or uh, the effort to bring uh, semiconductor manufacturing capability to China or um, efforts to encourage Chinese, efforts to actually encourage foreign competitors to come into this market to prod Chinese companies to get better at what they do or to joint venture with Chinese companies so that uh, innovation can be brought to China in certain areas. I think you know that in the foreign press we tend to look at the negative side. There are some negatives, but we don't tend to look at how aggressively the government is actually working in many ways that would be unacceptable in other places because it hurts your local companies in the short term in order to encourage long-term innovation and competition. However, the, the, the government has not been as effective, I think, at, at picking uh, winners and losers. So, uh, for example, there, there's essentially been three waves, in, in my experience, three waves of, of um, government-backed venture capital firm funds in, in China. The first wave the government said, well, it'd be good to, to be able to provide investment money to good companies and, and encourage our, uh, the growth of our high-tech industry. And, and essentially, the, the, they, they put money behind government officials to go out, you know, go out and build a high-tech industry. That was a disaster as far as, as I could see. And, and, and I don't know any of those funds that still really exist. The second wave was... Um, well, maybe university professors know a lot more about what's what's the best for high tech, and so it seemed like there were a lot of funds that had ex-university professors running around, but they they didn't know how to structure the investments or any of the sort of the market terms. The third wave has been much more effective, and essentially, it's uh, people who have come out of the international uh, private equity or venture capital industry 
and the government said, okay, well, we'll, we'll put some money behind you. Please go out there and try to, to uh, you know, invest in companies that you think are going to be, be successful. But it's much more sort of a private sector driven effort with the government providing encouragement rather than the government trying to do the, the, the picking and choosing. And beyond the VCs and investors putting their capital to work and with government support, what if we look at the entrepreneurs themselves? In particular, there's a number of uh, students uh, who have gone overseas to study in the U.S., uh, U.K., and other, other countries outside of China. And as you mentioned earlier, a lot of their names are appearing on these research papers. So do you see these, these uh, you know, China's best scholars going abroad uh, with a very strong science background and global perspective coming back to China to start companies, and how are those performing? So, you know, it's mixed, frankly. So there, there's a, there's a uh, term that people in China use to describe returnees. They call them haigui or sea turtles. And, and there is a perception that if you spend too much time outside of China, you really are not necessarily going to be effective within a Chinese business environment. At the same time, we have clients or people that we work with who you know, went to Australia or the United States or they have some idea and some type of technology and they've come back and they've actually been very, very successful. So I, I think it's really mixed. Okay. Well, I mean, for, for this, it, it takes time to see. I mean, in, in the venture space, a lot of these companies takes a number of years to actually develop and you know, become a Baidu, Alibaba, or Tencent. That's so right. There's a lot, of, right. A, lot, a lot of hope left. So, all right, Walker, why don't we uh, switch gears and uh, and, and tackle that uh, topic around uh, foreign company looking to enter the China market. Uh, so, you know, again, given your years of experience, can you just step us through, you know, even before different options for entry, how should a company think about that? So, so I, I have a lot of friends who are in the consulting industry. And the old joke used to be that, um, you know, the CEO of a company comes to China, sees a market of 1.3 billion people, and gets very excited about this opportunity. You know, it's the old thing, if I can sell a bar of soap to one bar of soap to 1.3 billion people, each, each one one bar, I'll be fabulously wealthy. But then, then the standard consulting analysis was, okay, well, yeah, there's 1.3 billion people, but the only people with any real spending power are in the East Coast cities. Okay, so now, now maybe I'm down to 200 million. Well, that still sounds like a pretty good market, like two-thirds of the United States. Well, yeah, actually, but within those cities, the people with spending power are actually much less. And so now you've been reduced down to maybe 100 million. And then, then you take a look at, well, the people who would be interested in that product, maybe it's even a subsection of that. And so the market gets much, much smaller. And so there's a, there, there was a tendency, especially in, in early years, for people to not really have a realistic view of what the China market was going to be like. And there's, there's any number of examples of companies um, who have come into China and had their hopes dashed on how difficult it is uh, to uh, succeed in this market. So um, I, I think another thing that's really important is you have to ask yourself at the end of the day, what's in it for China out of my, my business enterprise? So we get people all the time coming in with a, I've got a great joint venture idea and this is, this is going to be fantastic. And they've thought about every which way it's going to be fantastic for their bottom line, but they have not really asked themselves, why is the Chinese government going to think this is a fantastic idea? Why is my joint venture partner going to think that this is a fantastic idea? And if you think about all the horror stories of companies that have not worked out in China, it's oftentimes because there isn't an alignment of incentives. The government, so for example, people have a, have a concern in the, the high tech space 
with, um, you know, is the government maybe hostile to foreign high tech because it, it poses a security issue? Well, I, I think that, you know, the government actually in some cases is, is actively trying to court foreign high tech. And if you can ask yourself, how can I position myself so that I am a, a valuable part of the, the Chinese fabric? Like some, some GE does a great job of this. They advertise all over China. They, they position themselves as a Chinese citizen is important to the growth of China. You know, that, that tends to make you, to, to bulletproof you from a lot of concerns. And, and also it, it's focused on what your core objective should be in any case. You know, my business has got to be good for China. So people are buying my product or using me or. Yeah, very fair point, Walker. And I would also add one last thing around, you know, determining whether it's, uh, it makes strategic sense to enter China or not, whether for your company or for China. Uh, if we're focusing on you know, growth stage tech companies, you know, I know a lot of our audience members are working at tech companies or VCs and such. Um, you got to remember that if you're super early stage, you're still trying to figure out your product market fit in your own country. So at that point, if you're not ready, then and you enter the China market, it'll be a huge distraction. It requires a ton of effort, you know, different structures, whether it's JV or other, takes time. Uh, finding a right partner takes time. So at the end of the day, there must be a very clear objective and rationale for why you should enter China. At that, not only to enter China for uh, potential um, you know, commercial opportunities, but also at the right time and right stage of your company. So how about now we move into, you know, assuming that the company is the right type of profile to enter the China market, there is alignment with that company's objectives, values, and also for China. Uh, in that case, what, are they, what do they have to work with? What are the different options to actually enter? I mean, so the, 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 the textbook answer is, is that, you know, am I going to license somebody else to do my business in China? And, and there have been people who've been successful doing that. Am I going to come in and set up my own wholly owned enterprise to do business in China? Or am I going to do a, uh, a joint venture in China? And each has its uh, pluses and minuses. You know, the, the upfront uh, commitment in terms of doing some sort of licensing deal in terms of your own involvement in the market is relatively little. But then obviously the downside is is that you have less control over how that market's going to develop too. And you're potentially in some ways giving away a piece of that market. Um, you know, if you do it, if you do a wholly owned venture, that's a that's a full-time job and you really have to be committed to the, the to the market you can't do it by halves it's a totally different market you've got to you've got to be reacting to the market and understanding the market and positioning constantly repositioning yourself within the market just like you would in your home market um, and and there may be doors that are closed to you because you're an outsider and you're having to invent relationships and you're having to invent distribution channels if you do it as a joint venture you know some people think that uh, that we, we see disasters with joint ventures, unfortunately, all the time because people say, well, okay, I'm going to negotiate these joint venture contracts and then I'm going to step back. And unfortunately, what happens in the joint venture is both sides are stepping back and saying, okay, well, now what's, what's the other side going to do? And nothing happens and there's paralysis and there's, uh, you know, people get angry that things aren't happening the way they thought they were going to be. A joint venture is really a, a, not just a full-time job. It's a 150% time job because uh, you have to be in there with your sleeves rolled up and, and active. But the benefit is you're getting all of the, the, the things that your, your partner can bring to the table. So if you've chosen your partner well, they're bringing value to the table that is gonna be very valuable to that, that joint venture. But you gotta manage that relationship. It's as much work or more work than a, you know, a, a healthy marriage. Right, right. 
And when you mentioned there's a lot of value provided by the joint venture partner, I mean, can you step us through what are some of the key value, you know, key points on value exchange on both sides? If you enter this JV, you know, what does the American or foreign company bring to the table versus the Chinese side? So it's, it's different every time. And I, I think that, that it's very important going into a joint venture for, for people to have a uh, very, uh, a hard, take a hard-eyed look at what value am I bringing to the table and is that going to continue long-term to be valuable to my partner? Because if it is, then that's, the partner's gonna wanna be engaged with you. What value is my partner bringing to the table and is that going to continue to be a value to me so that this is gonna be a, a healthy joint venture partner? In, in for example, um, in the early days, it, it's changed. That that if you were going to generalize, the, the value proposition has changed over time. So in the early days, Chinese companies didn't have a lot of capital. They didn't have a lot of know-how about marketing in this economy. What they oftentimes had was they had government connections, a dusty piece of you know land with a factory, an old factory on it, and maybe maybe they had some distribution networks. But probably the distribution networks were not all that attractive to a foreign player because it was different pricing schemes, different model. It was being driven by, you know, the old state state um, command, con, command, state command economy. I, I, I'm messing up the words, but the, um, and the foreign partner brought high tech, they brought management know-how, they brought capital. So it was a very one-sided sort of relationship. Today, it's very different. And you have very sophisticated Chinese companies with, really good technology or really good distribution networks a real good con real good understanding of this economy that they're operating in and with real aspirations of building world-class products you have uh, foreign companies coming in that are actually the ones maybe they've got some technology we've done a lot of deals recently where it's a, been a, a high-tech company that has some good technology but they're at a relatively early stage of their development and uh, unlike a multinational, they don't have millions and millions of dollars in their own pockets to throw at developing a China business, but this would be a really attractive market to be in. So the value they're bringing to the table is this technology process know-how and the Chinese partners bringing the management know-how and the market know-how and, and has become a much more sort of proactive partner. Right, right. Well, you know, as you mentioned today, it seems like the Chinese offer again the, the marketing, the understanding of the local local market, the the, the sales channels, uh, management. They have resources. So in that instance, when a U.S. company again just focusing on the U.S. for now uh, brings their technology and processes, um, you know how do you maintain their uh, their their positioning there? Because you know we've also heard stories about Chinese companies partnering with U.S. companies, kind of learning about how the U.S. companies operate and develop the technologies at a certain point able to replicate their own as well. So, you know, talk us through the, the management of that risk. So, so um, I forget where this comes from. I think it was a, um, Robert Frost or something about good fences make for good neighbors. <laughs> but but um, healthy boundaries and a healthy understanding of sort of um, the, the uh, and, and, and putting sort of almost physical uh, boundaries in place in terms of the parties makes for a good partnership. So if you have a uh, technology which is a valuable technology, it's not something that you can simply hand it over and then say, go run with it. Now, there really has to be some way that um, you are continuing to contribute 
first of all, you, you, you are protecting your technology and the, the, the value that you built up in the technology, but you also um, can't be just standing still. You have to be continually innovating around that technology. Chinese companies, so, so the, 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 the uh, common view is, is that Western companies come to China and they get fleeced in terms of their technology. The reality is that this environment is very tough for Chinese companies too and that they find that a competitor suddenly is using their technology or is using their, uh, has, has uh, taken advantage of, a, of an insight that they think they have or an innovation they have. And, and um, you know, Western companies have concerns about whether they can get, they can protect their technology in court. Well, Chinese companies have exactly the same concerns. And what they've had to do is they've had to protect themselves more by taking uh, proactive steps to defect, uh, to protect themselves, but also out-innovating their competitors. Okay, so you copied A, I've already moved on to B. You try to copy B, I've already moved on to C. And so, um, you know, that that more than anything else is is the best way you can protect yourself by continuing to make yeah. yourself relevant in the yeah. market. Yeah, it, it almost seems that technology is only a, a temporal advantage. So, you know, if you create technology, you're maybe a couple months ahead, but it seems that you have very strong competitive modes. You need to be either you keep improving your technology really, really fast, or you add something else on top of that. And I, and I think you know, let's get to some examples. So, you know, in terms of an example of a foreign company that uh, had China exposure to it very well, I would say is, is League of Legends. So Riot Games, because uh, I think Tencent invested in them back in two thousand eight, and League of Legends is a super popular game. You know, hundreds. Of, I don't know the exact number, but a lot of people play it, and that's an example where. Even if Tencent, you know, replicated that game and tried to do their own thing, it would be very hard for them to achieve the same effect because uh, LOL has such a strong fan base. So over the years, they invested several rounds, I believe, before acquiring them, uh, completing acquisition in 2015. Uh, so that's an example of not necessarily technology differentiation, but more of a strong competitive moats from a loyal fan base. Mm -hmm. um, but there are plenty of other examples as well. and. Uh, uh, Walker, I know you've, I'm not sure if you've worked on these deals directly, but you know, look at LinkedIn entering China, Uber entering China, back in the day, eBay as well, and you know, Groupon and all of that. So it seems that a lot of these tech companies approach the entry via the JV, JV approach. Um, so could you just share your views and uh, your insights and wisdom on, on those, uh, uh, <laughs> those, those projects? Well, you know, some, some of those companies were very smart in terms of, uh, uh, you know, they, they thought very carefully, clearly about how, how could they align themselves with Chinese interests. So Uber is a, a, a classic example where a big part of their investor base coming into China was actually Chinese companies. I think Baidu may have been one of their investors. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, some Chinese companies, too, have uh, actively coached Western companies in terms of how to do better in China. Tencent's a great example. They're a great company and, and, and their management's very good. Um, you know, I've been opposite opposite them on a number of transactions where um, I've been super impressed by the way that they're looking for win-win solutions and helping to coach the Western investor into, look, here's how it's going to work so that it's going to be a sustainable relationship. Um, so those types of joint ventures, I think, are, are, are very, very positive. You, you know, if I, can, if I can make one just sort of a, a self-serving point as a lawyer, um, you know, the, the structure, the legal structure and the legal documents for a joint venture are very important, but they're not important, I think, sometimes for the same reasons that people coming from, let's say, the United States think that they're important. 
So there's a the model in in the United States, at least when I was when I was practicing in the United States, was kind of we're going to get into a room, we're going to strangle each other to come up with the right the right documents, and you know, I'm going to maybe bury some things in there and kind of hide hide a little little bomb, a couple bombs or or things on my on my, on my favor in there. Um, it's really in China. It's really if you get the structure and you get the the, the documents right, it will uh, affect the calculus of both sides. When when each side is thinking and doing the joint venture, you know what is my responsibility? Do I really like what this guy did? What should I do in response to that? You know, they're they're looking at it through the prism of the structure and they're looking at it through the prism of the documents. So as a, as a way of aligning expectations, both of those things are are really important. But if you are um, trying to pull a fast one in your legal documents, if there's not a certain generosity, frankly, in entering into a joint venture, you, your joint venture doesn't have, I, I don't have high hopes for the joint venture to begin with. Because the, the um, you know, frankly, if, if you go to your Chinese partner, let's say it's an SOE, and you go to the SOE and say, oh, by the way, you didn't know that clause 13.5D gives me an exclusivity for this specific section of China and I'm going to bring my products, they're going to basically say, screw you. And, and, and you know, you're going to have a hard time trying to en en enforce that clause. If you're getting to the point where you're, you're relying on your joint venture contract to talk to your, your uh, joint venture partner, look, you have an obligation under this section, or look, you have to do it on your joint venture is basically already unsuccessful. And you um, are, uh, if you end up in court over your joint venture contract, who knows which way it's going to go. It's going to be a crapshoot. But as a, as a way of aligning expectations and as a way of sort of building in some insurance, that's great. Don't rely on it as a crutch for execution and for actually managing your, your mm -hmm. uh, joint venture. Understood. Yeah, that's really helpful, Walker. I mean, I think <clears throat> on all your points regarding the joint ventures, you know, they're all very, very difficult problems. You know, first of all, whether you should enter the market, uh, who your partner should be, how do you structure it, uh, how do you maintain that company advantage, those are things to be figured out and be thought through. The one thing I know for sure is that for any company entering, looking to enter the China market, working with a legal firm such as O'Melveny, <laughs> one of their fantastic law firm would be a very smart decision. I mean, there's so many things that go into it. It's, it's, it's very it's important to be uh, prepared and make sure you understand all of these uh, these key risks and concerns. So, you know, one last question around entering the China market. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, I suppose was it more more passive ways of entering or kind of lighter approaches. So, th two things I had in mind were one, having a representative sales office here, mm -hmm. and two, perhaps making an investment in a Chinese company. You know, for example, when Yahoo invests in Alibaba mm -hmm. or Nasper is in, in Tencent. Uh, or even what Uber has today with the Uber you know, having sold, sold itself off to DD and having a 20% share in a near monopoly there. That, you know, in a sense seems to be a very good outcome for all of those companies. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, let, let's start with the investment piece. I mean, uh, any, any thoughts or views on, uh, you know, when does that make sense versus entering fully? So, so um, you know, we, we represent a lot of funds who are who have been doing investments in China since 2000, 2000 2001, when, when the fund industry really got started in China. We've been representing funds coming into China and making minority investments. And some of the same things um, apply around alignment of interests and around trying to um, make sure that you have good structures in place. and. Um, not getting things over specifying things getting too complicated for a while there was a it was very popular in in chinese 
in, in venture documents, for example, to have a ratchet. If you didn't meet, meet a certain valuation, then there'd be a ratchet and, and the investor would get a lot of shares. And more often than not, oftentimes what happened is, is when it came time to actually enforce the ratchet, um, the founder of the Chinese company said, well, I don't like this anymore. I'm, I'm not going to do this. And it, it oftentimes really didn't matter what the, what the legal document said. So, you know, getting alignment and, and trying to, you know, focus on trying to find win-win solutions, um, all, all still very important. But lots of examples, as you say, of, of success. Uh, you know, there, there are any single Chinese company that has listed in uh, the United States, almost all of them have minority venture investors, whether it's a, a Baidu, a Focus Media, an Alibaba, um, you know, Uber did its, it, it now owns a, a minority investment in um, uh, Didi. Um, you know, there, there are uh, well-established market norms out there so that, that there's a, a climate of expectations be, between the investor and the company that's being invested. The structures are relatively robust at this point. And there's an alignment of interest in terms of we all want to go public oftentimes, you know. And so um, the last thing I want to have is a big fight with my investor, which is going to scotch my chances of going public. As long as my investor is not being a total you know, tool about things, then you know, Chinese company and, and oftentimes investors bring a lot of value to the table. You know, I, I can introduce you to the investment banks. I can help to guide you through the IPO process. And so there, there's, you know, there are ways that there's sort of a natural alignment of interest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And then to that point around uh, the representative sales office. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you know, I ask that because in many ways, if a company wants to be smart and thoughtful before entering China market, uh, perhaps coming to China first and doing something light and observing the market might be helpful. I mean, is that even required? Should you even set up a sales office or just come out here, do a due diligence trip and learn about China that way? So, so that's a good, good question. And, and you know, I'm, I, there, there's sort of uh, many different schools of thought on that, but there are a lot of the big multinationals that are here started out in China really with just sales offices. They were uh, helping uh, distributors to bring their product into China and to sell their product in China and coach the distributors in terms of the marketing. Almost the whole luxury goods retail industry in China was originally, basically you weren't allowed to open, foreign uh, retailers weren't allowed to open stores in China. So almost the whole luxury good retail industry was originally done on the basis of local representatives. So LVMH would have been sold through a local China representative. It's a relatively low investment, uh, a light footprint way to get exposure to the country. Uh, it can be more expensive long term sometimes because oftentimes you want to then say, okay, well, this is a good market and I really want to get in and I really want to engage the market and you've got to buy back rights or, you know, uh, try to somehow get rights back from a, from a distributor. But it, it's certainly a way to, to, to be, be more engaged in China with a, a low upfront cost. Okay, got it. All right, Walker, thanks so much for all of that. So that's all the time we have for today. Definitely learn a lot over the course of this podcast and feel I'm getting some very valuable free legal advice. <laughs> so, yeah, so if we have more questions, uh, we know who to get back to. Thanks again for your time. No, thank you so much. Cheers, guys.